from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 11th. Today, how tech platforms are handling far-right extremism online, and a brief history of petty presidents. So, Parler is like Facebook, except none of your friends and family, and all political, mostly right-wing talk. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for the Post. Parler sort of emerged out of this belief from certain conservatives online that Twitter was censoring them and other social media were suppressing them, and so they needed to sort of all gather on this site that promises free speech, no moderation, no elites judging you for what you think. And now we're talking about Parler because of the events of January 6th and the fact that a lot of the conversation leading up to that that discussion happened on Parler. Yeah, so Parler was one of the main ways that people were actually starting to organize, and not just organize, but also talk about sort of threats of violence, how to sneak guns into D.C., what to do when you get there, what politicians should be afraid of. So finally, the companies that build the infrastructure that Parler relies on finally said, "Enough is enough. We don't want to work with you anymore." After the insurrection attempt on Wednesday, in the days after, Apple and Google started to tell Parler that we don't want to allow your app on our app stores anymore. They were giving them a 24-hour deadline for Parler to commit to moderating their content and being more aggressive in terms of taking violent threats offline. Parler wasn't able to meet that, and so Parler dropped off those app stores. That was a big loss for them because people couldn't download Parler onto their phone anymore. But the real sort of killing blow came because of Amazon Web Services. Amazon is, of course, founded by Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post. And Amazon Web Services, for people who don't know, I mean, it is a giant on the internet. Many of the websites that you you travel to see online are built on Amazon Web Services. It, it hosts files. It does all sorts of things. So for Parler to drop off Amazon's hosting meant that they were suddenly effectively homeless. They had no place to go online. No, no way to allow people to come see the data and, and see the website. So. All of this kind of happened all at once, and it effectively caused the site to collapse. And people talk about decisions like this using the term "deplatforming," that you basically take away the internet infrastructure that allows these sites to be as popular and widespread as they are. What are some of the other ways that we've seen "quote unquote" deplatforming in the last week in response to what happened at the Capitol? I mean, the biggest. Deplatforming was the president himself, right? I mean, President Trump was knocked off Twitter for good. Twitter said, "We've seen some of this talk you've been saying about election fraud, saying that, that Biden's win wasn't real. We've also seen you sort of celebrating some of the insurrection actors and and kind of cheering that on. So finally, we're going to knock you off Twitter." And so now. 
President Trump cannot say anything on Twitter again. He can't even use the POTUS tag to talk. So, you know, when people talk about deplatforming, they mean we're going to take away your megaphone. We're going to make it so you can't use this website anymore. And we've also seen that with a number of other Twitter accounts that were related to QAnon or hate speech or disinformation, where the site finally just said, enough is enough. We don't have to give you our our business. We don't have to support you. And, and we're going to take it away. But I'm curious about why all of this is happening now, because of course, there have been many things that have occurred over the past four years that could qualify as hate speech or could meet this bar that these companies are, are setting for what they think is and is not allowable for their platforms. So let's just start with talking about what these companies are saying. Like, what is their rationale for why this moment? Yeah, so everything changed with the siege on Wednesday. Everything became that much more violent, that much more grounded in the real world. And all of the websites are being much more aggressive in terms of saying these messages have had real world violent impact. But there has been a question of what took so long, right? Uh, You know, even going back to President Trump, he has been sharing misinformation, sharing lies, um, calling for violence, attacking his enemies on Twitter for years and years. And for a long time, Twitter has defended allowing him to stay on the platform by saying, you know, he's a newsmaker. He's the leader of the free world. We can't just remove his microphone. So for them to sort of change tack at this point is both a recognition that the the criticism has gotten to them, even from their own employees. They're starting to find it much harder to defend. But they're also sort of acknowledging that there's a real and present danger even now, even after the siege. I mean, there's a feeling that more violence could happen in the days ahead. So they feel like if they can do anything to mute that message, then they're going to do it. Though I've seen several people point out that in the aftermath of Charlottesville, the fact that somebody died there, that there was violence there, that there was a sense that there could be more violence forthcoming. And these dramatic steps from tech companies did not occur even after that. Yeah, absolutely. And after Charlottesville, I mean, the companies were really widely criticized by by people who said, like, you are effectively complicit and and getting this message out. And, you know, we saw that with some sort of niche websites after other sort of extremist mass shootings. We saw this with 8chan and 8coon and, and websites like Gab, all of these sort of far right preferred websites where they've sort of lost their own business and been deplatformed in a way. But we've really never seen it like this. We've never seen the companies finally saying enough is enough. And, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, you can say companies like Twitter are finally starting to build a backbone now that Trump is heading out of office. Now Mm. that they know, you know, the Democrats are going to be controlling Washington. They're going to be controlling the House and the Senate. And more importantly, they're going to be controlling the congressional committees that will be setting policy for these companies. So there's a sense that maybe they're just trying to hew toward what they think will be coming from Democratic lawmakers in, in coming months. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that they're 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 just now starting to save face because they see it as a, a survival uh, technique, right? This is, this is self-defense hmm. for them. And what has been the reaction from lawmakers in response to the fact that now these tech companies have taken this more aggressive stance? So Republicans have been livid, in, in some cases more livid about Trump being dropped off Twitter than uh, the deadly 
siege that in some cases they backed. You, you know, they have seen this as one more way that Silicon Valley is mucking in Americans' affairs, silencing voices they disagree with. You know, so they are going to be calling, as they have called for a while now, for more restraint on Silicon Valley. They want to take away stuff like Section 230, which prevents these companies from being sued for what people post on their websites. On the on the Democrat side, I mean, they see Trump being dropped off Twitter as maybe too late, but maybe not too little. Like maybe this is a good step. I mean, they've been calling for this for a long time. There are people who see Twitter's argument and see the connection to potential violence, and but still say, I, I, this, this feels a little Orwellian to me or a little too far. But, you know, I think we're going to have this bigger political conversation, especially as the Biden administration gets underway of, you know, should these companies be aggressive or should they be what they've been for, for so long and the defense they've always had, which is that we don't want to self-police everything that people say. We just want to be the platform from which people share their message. So we're, we're kind of in an identity crisis moment for these companies. And, and I'm really curious what it's going to look like in the year ahead. And I'm curious for Parler specifically, what have they said about the fact that they've now been deplatformed? And like, do they expect that this is the end of Parler? Or are they just going to find an online home elsewhere using different companies? So Parler has taken on a huge tone of victimhood. They feel like it's coordination by big tech, that they're suppressing conservative ideas. They really take the tone that they are the only site for free speech online and that if you're a conservative, you're just bound to be suppressed online. To hear these companies, it's really not about political speech. It's really about the violence. It's really about the threats of, you know, hanging Mike Pence and and killing journalists, all of which were playing out on Parler and other sites. So I think Parler.com may go away. When we've seen these deplatforming episodes before, the websites have kind of carried on in a new way. 8chan becomes 8kun. They, they get different servers. It's very rarely the same website. Every time you, you shift onto something new, you lose a little bit of your audience. Maybe the technical underpinnings are a little worse. And so the research has kind of shown that deep platforming does work. When we've seen some of these far-right figures be knocked off of Twitter and go to these other niche sites, people don't always follow them. But they don't just disappear, right? They don't just fade into the ether as some people would like. They still have people who, who support them and they still create this martyrdom idea where they feel like, we were unfairly treated. And so you've got to be that much more aggressively on our side. So parlor.com may go away, but the spirit of parlor and the spirit of far right speech online will not vanish so easily. They'll, they'll find another place to start spreading the message and, and this whole battle will continue anew. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post. If you were paying attention to the forums and the things people were saying online, this has been planned for a long time. From at least like mid-December, you knew that people were planning to go to the Capitol on that day. And by early January, people definitely were planning on storming the Capitol and going into Congress. I'm Rosanna Clowey, and I'm a researcher on the National Security Desk. 
And I've been reporting on the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and the internet culture and spaces that contribute to what happened on that day. Roseanne spoke to Post Reports producer Renny Spernofsky about how far-right online forums stoked false claims of election fraud, and why, for her, it wasn't all that surprising to see it come to violence. Roseanne mentions a lot of different conspiracy theories that you may or may not have heard about. But we just want to be clear, QAnon and these other theories are not based in fact. So you say that people have been communicating and, and planning this kind of stuff online and in forums. And where where exactly is that happening? So people were planning the events of January 6th on a couple of different places, including Telegram, which is an encrypted messaging app that a lot of far-right and extreme-right elements like to congregate because they have basically been banned from everywhere else on the internet. There's a forum called Parler that is basically a Twitter clone. There's also a pretty big independent forum called the Donald.win, which was a Reddit community that was kicked off Reddit a couple of years back because they were so toxic. And so they started their own website called the Donald.win. And they were a really big part of anticipating and planning the event. They talked about storming the Capitol. People on there discussed bringing guns and murdering legislators. So this was definitely established before January 6th. And who are these people who are making these plans? Do do we know much about them, what their beliefs are rooted in? So since the internet is super anonymized, it's hard to say exactly who these people are and if they even attended the rally, but they were definitely online fostering a lot of hatred and kind of promising violence on these platforms. There's people who are neo-Nazis who kind of don't like Donald Trump and think he's too moderate, but still are happy to encourage violence. So they were happy to see people descend on the Capitol on Jan 6th. There's also just really hardcore Trump supporters who are maybe really, really embroiled in QAnon belief or who are just, you know, really believe that the election was entirely fraudulent and that their last recourse was to go on to the Capitol when the election was supposed to be certified and prevent it from happening by any means necessary. But in terms of the people who we have identified as people who attended the protest, and I'm thinking of maybe people like even Ashley Babbitt, who was killed at the protest, what what do we know about them? and maybe what they've been posting on social media and things like that. A lot of different groups descended on the Capitol that day, and a lot of different types of corners of the right wing descended on the Capitol. So you've got people like Nick Fuentes, who is kind of this figurehead of the America First movement, which is a super online American nationalist movement. You know, And he was there with his, his followers and his associates called Groypers, You had people like Baked Alaska, who he was this, you know, far right streamer who was there at Charlottesville. So you had a lot of people who are known elements of the far right. You also had Trump supporters who had just kind of got caught up in a lot of the conspiracy and a lot of the deep beliefs of election fraud. And I would, you know, classify somebody like Ashley Babbitt as one of those people, you know, she was posting, you know, very frequently on her social media accounts about QAnon adjacent theories. She was posting, you know, about election fraud and how we needed to go and expose 
what was going on with the election and how she needed to go down there. And so you could see that this person, by the time they got to the Capitol, was pretty radicalized, even though they didn't necessarily have an affiliation with an extreme group like Proud Boys or Groypers. You know, your average person who went down on that day had had probably developed a pretty radicalized sense of ideology just from the internet spaces they were on, just due to the ubiquity of QAnon belief and the ubiquity of this idea that the election was stolen and it, it was all a huge conspiracy between, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and the Democrats and the global elites to refuse Trump another term. And are we pretty sure that it is the people who were talking in these threads and forums that they're the ones who actually did attend and act? So this is interesting because people on the right and the far right and anybody else on the internet are known as keyboard warriors. They talk a lot about what they're going to do, but it's unclear if they actually do anything. And I definitely think it's worth investigating if these people who threaten this really extreme violence actually even showed up. and if these words that these people were putting out there actually influenced people to bring IEDs, to bring bombs, to to bring guns, to you know enact violence that other people followed, but they themselves didn't follow through with. A lot of stuff that was discussed in these spaces did actually materialize on the Capitol that day. You know, for example, things like nooses on the Donald.win, one of the top posts of all time basically suggested or instructed people on how to to tie and hangman noose to bring it down on January 6th. And we're talking things like gallows. You know, there was literally an improvised, you know, cheaply made gallows. And, you know, people were chanting after Mike Pence refused to decertify the election. People were chanting, Hank Mike Pence. And that wasn't something that was necessarily on the the platforms beforehand, but that kind of sentiment was was encouraged and, you know, egged on by people, you know, weeks before this happened. Other things that materialized that day that had been discussed on the forums were, were QAnon. Um, QAnon chants were being said, you know, people were chanting QAnon conspiracy theories, um, which, you know, has basically permeated every space on the far right, including, you know, even the neo-Nazis and white supremacists will repeat QAnon canards, even though they won't be directly referencing them. People showed up with Q hoodies and T-shirts. It was basically a far-right message board if you took that and made it into an event. You know, you had all sorts of extremists and conspiracists just out there in their favorite gear and their goggles and America flag drapes. And it was, you know, all on the Capitol for us to see. How aware was law enforcement of this online presence and were they monitoring it? And I guess like, why didn't they seem better prepared for what ended up happening based on what was on these online forums? It's very unclear um, to me why law enforcement was so unprepared for what happened that day. D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti said there was no intelligence that would have foretold storming the Capitol. And I don't know what he necessarily considers intelligence, but there were clearly indications weeks prior of people showing up to D.C. on January 6th and committing violence. And that included storming the Capitol. You could go to the Donald.win right now and find threats 
you know, pretty actionable threats dating back to mid-December. Why law enforcement wasn't monitoring that or reaching out to these people, it's very unclear. And so what are we seeing now on these forums ahead of inauguration? Are there more plans happening? Um, What should we expect to see in the coming days? So there's a lot of different things happening across the different forums. The different spaces have different ideologies and everybody's reacting, you know, in their own way to what happened on January 6th. For example, the hardcore QAnon spaces, they're basically doubling down. They're saying, you know what, we still believe that Trump has a plan and that he has yet to drop this reality-shifting intelligence that will result in thousands of arrests across the globe of, of, you know, liberal elites. So they're doubling down. They're saying, we believe in Trump our god emperor of the United States, or Geotis, as people lovingly call him on many of these spaces. And we are, you know, we're choosing to stick with him. This is our guy. We believe in this theory, which kind of, you know, tracks because it is such a all-encompassing and and deeply conspiratorial worldview. People who are maybe, you could argue, more tethered to reality, such as the Proud Boys, and other kind of, you know, street groups are kind of wavering in their support of Donald Trump or certain sections or sectors of these groups. You know, everything is very you know fractured on social media and they're, they're clashing, you know, the, the Trump supporters versus the people who have, you know, lost faith in Trump. There are arguments, you know, if you go there right now, there are arguments over whether Trump misled these people and why he brought them down to a, not reveal any information that, you know, would shift the trajectory of the election and B, renege on his support for these people and tell them that they, you know, that lawlessness is not tolerated. So people are really confused on um, a lot of these spaces. People are kind of wondering what the next thing is for them after this this movement seemingly fell apart on January 6th. On the super far right, you know, we're talking neo-Nazis and white supremacists, they're absolutely salivating over the opportunity to recruit these disaffected, alienated Trump supporters. They are already discussing strategies to recruit people who are upset with their treatment by the state and police and who are dissatisfied with Trump and how he conducted himself on January 6th. They are discussing how they can introduce people to extreme white supremacist ideology by couching it in, you know, Americana and uh, more palatable aesthetics. So for where this movement goes now, it's unclear, but there are a lot of actors within the space looking to capitalize off of this moment. And it's, it's pretty dangerous. Razan Niklawi is a researcher on the National Security Desk. Rani Svernovsky is a producer for Post Reports. One more thing. 
Last Friday on our show, we talked about Trump's plans to skip Biden's inauguration. And we made a mistake. We said that Trump would be only the second president to skip his successor swearing in. But it turns out that's not true. The history of pettiness among American presidents runs way deeper than we thought. And this correction brought us down a bit of a history rabbit hole. The first one was John Adams back in 1801. When Thomas Jefferson uh, became president, Jefferson was his old pal, but they had a falling out. So Adams left before Jefferson's inauguration. And the second one was John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams. He didn't go to the inauguration of uh, Andrew Jackson because he despised him. I'm Ron Schaefer. I am in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm retired from the Wall Street Journal, where I was the Washington political features editor. And now I write freelance articles for the Washington Post about history. President Trump is actually the fifth president uh, not to attend. And usually uh, they didn't go because they didn't like the guy coming in. A lot of people don't realize Martin Van Buren didn't go to the 1841 inauguration of William Henry Harrison. Uh, We don't know why, because they were actually pretty good friends. And then the fourth was President Andrew Johnson in 1869. He did not go to the inauguration of uh, Ulysses S. Grant because they also were on the outs. So Johnson was the last one, so it's been 152 years uh, since the president uh, didn't go to his successor's inauguration, and that's Donald Trump. You know, it strikes me that choosing to not attend your successor's inauguration hasn't really happened in the last century and a half, but that it was actually somewhat more common in the first century of, of our country. And so I'm wondering, do you think that it's just that, like, presidents back then were a little bit more petty than they tend to be now? Or why why do we see this kind of drop off in, in presidents feeling like they have the choice to be able to say, I'm just not going to be there that day? Well, I think if you went way back, you could see some pettiness and uh, in presidents. And uh, now Johnson, much like Trump, he was very egotistical and he always uh, was out for revenge. Johnson really didn't decide until the last minute, the very last day. Nobody knew what he was going to do. They had the carriage waiting for him. Grant pulled up in his carriage, and they're waiting for the president to come out. And he doesn't come out. He had decided in the very last day, he had all his cabinet members with him, that he just wasn't going to go. So everybody was looking at this portico in the White House are sort of like the sound of music when they're waiting for the Von Trapp family to come out, and he doesn't come out. So they fire the cannons, and they say, okay, get the parade going. And so Grant goes up there, and there's no uh, nobody in Johnson's carriage. I love that it feels like this particular moment of the presidency is like filled with drama and in many ways like immature emotions, but it's in some ways comforting that that could still be the case many years ago. In fact, in the newspapers uh, of the day when Johnson was back at the White House, uh, they said he was back there signing papers and pardoning criminals. Ron Schaefer is a freelancer for The Post. 
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Lawmakers are moving at a lightning speed toward impeaching the president for the second time. On Monday, House Democrats introduced an article of impeachment. They're charging Trump with incitement of an insurrection. The House could vote on that charge as early as Wednesday. We'll be covering this on the podcast in coming days. But in the meantime, for the latest updates, go to WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 